Welcome, welcome good students. We are now to um, the phrase in the creed, he descended to the dead. We mentioned it during our panel last Friday, but now we get to add it formally. And now we're about halfway through the creed. We're at the ending point of the Old Testament. I intentionally tried to organize it so that our material would coincide here at the ending of the Old Testament with this phrase, he descended to the dead. In the creed, he descended to the dead refers to Jesus, the main character of the Christian Bible, who is killed in a particularly humiliating way who suffers in a particularly humiliating way and who dies, truly dies. He descends to the dead. And so this is the part in the creed where he descends to the dead. Um, there are gonna be some amazing plot twists and surprise developments after the descent to the dead. So don't worry, hang in there. Um, but I've used this to coincide with the end of essentially Israel's experience historically as a nation, as a powerful group in their own way in the Bible, in the Old Testament, okay? So there was, a kind of, there was a kind of meaning there, even though we haven't gotten the character Jesus by name, we've already seen many of the dynamics we're going to see in the Jesus story. And we've, we've, we've heard the first shots, the first sounds of echoes that are going to echo throughout scripture and continue on into that last part of the Christian Bible, which is called the New Testament. So this thing we're ending is, of course, the Old Testament. So let's say the creed up to where we have it. We added, um, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried last week. You remember that? Now we're adding, he descended to the dead. Should we give it a shot? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Okay, excellent. This is how our story of the Old Testament ends for now. I'm gonna read from the book of 2 Kings, the very last chapter. I've assigned you various readings for this week from First and Second Kings that'll kind of give you the highlights of this story. And this lecture will hopefully prepare you for that reading. But let's just do one of those techniques where you skip straight to the end and then you go back and fill in how did we get there, okay? 2 Kings 25. So this is the end of a story that really begins in the book of Genesis and goes all the way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. There are a lot of other books in the Bible too. We'll, we'll get a chance to mention a few of them here in a minute, some that we didn't even get to talk about yet in, in this course, um, that narrate things kind of like concurrent with events that happen in this story and at various points. And some of the books, we don't know when the events are supposed to have happened. And then there are a couple of books that actually have events after the end of 2 Kings, but not too many. Okay. So this story we've been tracking with throughout basically Genesis through Kings is kind of like the spine of the, of the Bible's main story of Israel. And here's how it ends in the book of 2 Kings chapter 25. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, this is one of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So like a two-year siege, apparently. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. 
Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. There's a description, a more detailed description of how they broke down the temple, burning the bronze pillars and melting them down and doing all this kind of stuff. And then in verse 21, so Judah went into captivity away from her land. There's a little bit of material after that and a small, a small note of hope. Perhaps we'll be able to come back to that note of hope at the end of the lecture, but that's pretty much it. This whole national experiment, this whole thing about the kids and the land and the king and the Davidic promise and the genealogies and the whole thing, the temple, all came down to this. The whole thing about the law, you know, like in Le- Le- Exodus and Leviticus, how there were all those laws and rules about sacrifice. They were to do that at the temple. The book of Deuteronomy repeatedly emphasizes, you're going to do this sacrifice stuff at the place I will show you, in the city I will show you. That's Jerusalem. They build the temple. They've got the whole thing going, and then it gets burned down. And now it's done. Which I think prompts serious questions in the minds of readers at this point. How does Israel end up like this? Is this the end of the story, essentially? Should it be the end of the story? What about God's covenant with the people, with the nation, with David? Was it a conditional covenant? Do you remember this word covenant we've been talking about kind of all semester? A kind of a deal between parties? I mean, when it's a deal between God and the people, I mean, what is God's, you know, the people's end of the covenant was pretty clear, at least at one point. They were to not worship other gods. They were to follow the law that God had given them at Sinai. That's the whole point of the deal. But there are other aspects of the covenant too, which seemed not conditional, which makes it more confusing. If it were just as simple as saying, look, this is the story of the Old Testament. God has some people, they're a bunch of idiots, he judged them, let's get some new people, okay? I mean, that's, that's one way of thinking about the story, but it's an incomplete way. It doesn't really work, and it's not as complicated at all as the actual narrative is. That's one way of looking at a certain aspect of the story. The people, God has some people, he made them a deal, be my people, worship me and me alone, and I'll protect you, yay! But like, remember Job, remember these books that are more complicated than this, suggesting that even sometimes righteous obedience doesn't just equal protection. I mean, you could get really practical about this in your own life. I mean, have you ever had a, have you ever, I mean, have you ever had a time in your own life where you felt like you really did the right thing, you really studied for the exam, you prepared yourself for the, you know, the sporting event, you know, whatever it is, and it just didn't go well. Results don't always flow from preparation or from moral status of, you know, a person. It doesn't work like that. So Israel doesn't work like that either. So because there are places like in Genesis where God's promise to the ancestors doesn't seem to be predicated on anything, anything other than them obeying very simple commands. Abraham and Sarah, leave your home and go to this place. God doesn't even say, leave your home and go to this place and act in these particular ways. He just says, leave. And they're like, okay, see ya. We don't, even, we don't get to hear any of their struggle, nothing. They just obey. Jacob, the same way, okay? We get the conditions later. But then, even when we get to David, remember that stunning promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
David, you can't build me a house. I'm gonna build you a house. It's gonna be a fantastic house. And in fact, your children are gonna reign on the throne forever. And if they screw it up, even this idea of the people's failure on that side of the covenant is raised. Because God says to David in that stunning chapter, even if you screw it up, I'm gonna like slap you on the wrist about it. I'll give you a beating, okay? But I still am never gonna take away my side of the covenant. That's it. It's just, it's unconditional. You, will, you and your descendants will reign forever. Boom. I mean, that's a, that's a big promise to leave hanging out there, you know? It's like promising in a marriage, you know? Like you stand at an altar and you look at, you know, your wife or your husband to be, and you're like, I will just, you know, the classic vows, in, you know, for poor, you know, in, in, in riches and, and in poverty and in sickness and in health. And you just make this promise. It's like, how can you make a promise like that? You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just promising something and I don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah, I mean, that's how that deal was posed at points. God just promises Israel, I'm your God and you're my people and that's it. It's a weird mystery in the Bible, the mystery of election. God just says, you. <laughs> and Abraham's like, why me? Okay. You know, it's not explained. So it's mysterious. So it's not as simple as just saying, I think you could let yourself off the hook as a Christian and as a reader by saying, whew, glad this story makes so much sense. Israel just screwed it up and God punished them. No, it kind of doesn't quite make that much sense. It's not quite like that. You haven't been reading or tracking with the story, I think, in a complicated enough way if you think, oh, it's just about the people screwing up. That does happen, by the way, all over the place. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they get kicked out of the garden. But there are more mysterious processes at play too, which can't quite be totally covered by just that dynamic, I think. We probably all know that Jesus is coming in the Bible and that Jesus is somehow a solution to this exact problem we've now come to with Israel. But the question hanging out there is like, how is Jesus a solution to this exact problem? And what is exactly the problem? I guess the problem is that there was a covenant and now it's kind of like broken, but yet God said he was still going to be faithful to it. How is God going to be faithful to it? How is that going to work? Is it going to be in a surprising way? Is it going to work in a traditional way? Maybe Israel will just get another king. I mean, wouldn't this be a natural development? They had this huge failure at the end of 2 Kings. The temple gets burned down. Well, let's just get a new king in here, somebody who will come with like a giant sword and just kick the butts of these empires like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, it's going to be another group, the Persians. And after the Persians, it's going to be another group, the Greeks. And after the Greeks, it's going to be another group, the Romans. Now we're maybe getting into history you're, you're more familiar with. Like, oh yeah, the Romans, the Roman Empire. Yeah, they're coming too and they're gonna have, hold sway over the land. And maybe one trajectory of this story that you could imagine is that if Israel could just get a king who's like super anointed by God and super loved by God, just like David was, maybe even in David's line, genealogically, or we could just pretend that he is or say he's like an honorary member, okay? If we could get somebody like that who could come down with an army, get everyone in Israel really excited again about their nation, about the promise, they could then run in, kick the empire out, and build like a glorious, everlasting, divine kingdom. That idea, in a sense, was one live option for some Jews. And Jew is a term that we haven't used yet in this class because there really isn't, aren't any Jews or Judaism until after the Old Testament story ends. We can really start speaking of Jews and Judaism a little bit later in our story. And certainly by the time of Jesus, we can. But that option, that like, let's get a new leader who's like, you know, gonna like make this all right again, just like in the times of David, was really a live option then in Israel of say the Greek and the Roman period later. They were really looking for something like this. Some Jews were, not all Jews were, but some were. I mean, this is in a sense, something like a revival of the Messiah idea. Do you remember back when we talked about, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, uh, um, I believe in, in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. 
We talked about this Messiah ideal, this idea of the Mashiach, the one who would like be anointed by God. Like let's revive that idea. If the empire has fallen to shreds, if Israel is done, let's just revive it, you know? And there were some Jews who in fact wanted to do just that. The question though of how you would do that though in the face of an empire, it would seem to take like a divine intervention, like divine armies from heaven fighting against the Romans and just kicking butt all over the place because Israel was just never really big enough to do it. And indeed, there were some groups like the group that, that produced and copied the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember way from back when we were talking about textual criticism and all that stuff. These early manuscripts, there was in fact a Jewish sectarian group who lived out in the desert and they thought exactly that's what was going to happen. That God, that angels would come and fight alongside of them in a climactic battle, defeat Rome, reinstitute the right way to worship in the temple, which they didn't think was happening during their time and make it all work out. Was that Israel's only option though, or were there other ways to see this? That's, that's kind of the rest of the plot that we're gonna have to find out in the rest of the semester, okay? Today, at least, what I wanna accomplish, just by way of summary, by way of preparing you for your readings for this week, for thinking, is to just, okay, let's just finish this story. What happens in the books of Kings in particular, First Kings and Second Kings? We've already taken some leaps into that story at various points. We've already mentioned Solomon, but it's time to really do this, okay, get to that. Get us through the end of the story. How did we get to that point that I read to start where the Babylonians are there and they burn down the temple, okay? And by the way, um, we, we wanna make a nod to the many materials, not so many that I feared, but there are a lot of books we just didn't even talk about at all that are in the Old Testament. We didn't have time to read them and we didn't have time to talk about them too much. In our textbook, all the books are covered and you can find various chapters on the prophets in different books that will cover them if you want a quick summary without reading the books. The best way is just to read the books themselves. But I've listed these books here that we didn't really talk about explicitly here on the board. Um, and I'll, I'll give a brief nod to all of them so at least we can feel a sense of closure at some point. Okay, so first, in summary, I guess I already did this here. The Torah kids land David trajectory. Are we clear on that? The Torah kind of sets up the dynamic of God as creator, who is God, burning bush, ancestors, Moses, the Hebrews, the people that get stuck in Egypt, Pharaoh's the wrong ruler, get them out of there, bring them out into the wilderness where God will test them. They kind of fail the test in a way in the wilderness, okay? So here we do get the, the kind of sin punishment cycle set up in a serious way. God says, obey me. Don't, you know, don't go dallying after these other gods. Already in the book of Exodus, they're there, Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain. The people are like, eh, he's taking a long time. How about, we make a, how about we make another god to worship or some physical representation of this god? Moses comes down, sees them iconically, takes the tablet of the law that God has given him, breaks the tablet of the law. You don't have to be a sophisticated literary genius to see the symbolism there, okay? <laughs> it's like super on the nose. The Bible's very subtle at points. The Bible's very on the nose at other points. He's breaking the law, the tablets. The people have broken the law. But notice still, God just doesn't say, see ya, bye, you broke the law. He sticks with them. They get punished, but he sticks with them. That's a key biblical dynamic all the way from Adam and Eve, through Cain the murderer, through Israel, through the New Testament, through my life today and through all of our lives as people of faith. You do things wrong, but God sticks with you. To, to quote part of the New Testament, even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And that's a story that is told already in Israel's experience. So this happens and there are promises, basically the promise kids in land, and they get the kids in land. And, and the Davidic king is kind of like the moment at which the land becomes under control, really in the book of Samuel. Even though God wasn't happy when they asked for a king to start, he gets happy later when it's the right king, namely David. Now, to the new material for this week. First Kings 1 through 11, part one, Solomon. 
Solomon is David's son. The book of 1 Kings begins, as I think you'll see in the readings for this week, with David dying. So David's still hanging around, although not, not very strongly in 1 Kings. He dies. There's a bunch of political intrigue. It's not actually clear that Solomon, exactly Solomon, is supposed to be the king, but he ends up being the king, okay? He kind of battles through it. He does a bunch of gritty stuff. He does some murdering. You get a lot of gritty, gritty politics in the book of, of, uh, of Kings, First and Second Kings, okay? It's not clear that Solomon is always the most righteous dude, but in fact, he's a famous king in the Bible because of a, a couple of things. One is there are stories about his wisdom. Apparently Solomon was revered in ancient Israel for, his, for, the, for the wisdom tradition. And this is why Solomon becomes a traditional author of books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, even though the book of Proverbs actually has listed other authors in it too. He also traditionally authors, oh, a book I didn't even mention up here. I should have put this on the list of books that we didn't talk about, a book called The Song of Songs or just Songs. So it's a collection of love poetry. So the tradition was that Solomon wrote the songs as a youthful, vibrant young lover. And then he writes the book of Proverbs as like a mature kind of middle-aged guy who's like got it all under control. And then as he's getting older and realizing that life wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes as an old man, very angry. And you can see that projection. It makes a nice kind of story to put it along with Solomon's life. Scholars have a lot to say about traditional authorship versus actual authorship, namely saying that Solomon didn't write any of these books actually, but that's a separate conversation that we could have. If we had a part two to this class, we could get deeper into stuff like that. But for now, we'll just see Solomon as a traditional author for those books. So he's doing great. He builds the temple. God finally is ready to say, okay, fine, you can build me a temple. And they build it. There's this great scene. Solomon prays this prayer. Oh God, thank you. May we obey you forever. And everyone's like, yeah, we will. And then, in the last chapter of Solomon's life, 1 Kings chapter 11, the narrative turns on Solomon. Solomon begins worshiping other gods. He not only, we find out, this is a shocker, he not only builds a temple to the Lord, he builds temples to these other gods too. Like deities that are not Israel's God. Why would he do that? I don't know. Well, the text says why he does it. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Solomon did this kind of stuff and his, wife, his wives turned his heart away. He followed, verse five, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Jeez, how did, it, how did it go that way? You know, you might not have predicted that, but it does. After Solomon dies then, part two, division, intrigue, stretching from maybe 1 Kings chapter 12 through chapter 16. I've just broken these up into units that made sense to me. When you read, maybe you'll see other things. After Solomon dies, he's got a, he's got a successor with an obscure name, Rehoboam. And this guy, Rehoboam, is like, eh, I don't know. Maybe we should try to enslave part of the country to build things for us. And, you know, and the northern part of the country is like, yeah, we don't really want to do that. He's like, yeah, I don't care if you don't want to do that. You're going to do it. And they're like, okay, well, see ya. We're not a country with you anymore. Okay, <laughs> so now there's that. So now the two parts of the country, I mean, just to draw a very rudimentary map, obviously you can Google Maps and find an, a map of ancient Israel that's better than this one, and we have some in the textbook, but you can always draw a nice map of Israel just by going like this and making two little circles for the Sea of Galilee, connecting them with a river, boom, there you go. That's Israel, okay? Um, J Jerusalem is right here. This is Jerusalem down here, Jer Jerusalem, by the Dead Sea. Um, 
The northern part of the country, when we talk about that northern part, we're talking about this part. And when we're talking about the southern part, Judah, we're just talking about this little part around Jerusalem. But this whole northern part of the country just said, no, we're not part of you anymore. We're not coming down to your temple. You don't get to tell us what to do. You're not the boss of me. You're not my real dad. And um, this is now, we've got our own country. Okay? The narrative tracks with this story, though. I mean, this is, the, this is the David part of the story down here in Jerusalem. That's where David is. That's where God has the temple. That's where they want them to be. So there's political stuff going on here, too. This northern part of the country was, in fact, a more politically prosperous place on the broader ancient Near Eastern scene. So you can imagine why they just want to kind of do their own thing. So they did. The Bible says that they broke away, and in fact, that their breakaway under this king named Jeroboam, you'll see him coming up, is kind of like compared at one point in a very on-the-nose way, okay, very blunt, to, in fact, the worshiping of the golden calf in the book of Exodus. Because Jeroboam makes these two golden calves and says to Israel the exact words that Aaron says to the Israelites in Exodus 32. Here are your gods, O Israel. Again, it's, met your, it's echoes. You're meant to be like, oh, they're like the bad behaving Exodus group. Yes, that's how you're supposed to see it in the biblical narrator's eyes. So there's division. They split away. Pretty soon after they divide, this king from Egypt named Shishak comes in. He plunders the country, including Jerusalem and the temple. What? Now you have foreign kings like plundering the nation and the temple? It sounds like what was going on in the book of 1 Samuel before they even had a king at all. Yes, yes indeed. Things are weakening now to that point. Next part, Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings 17 all the way through um, 2 Kings 13. This is a long stretch of material. This is a time period in which we have a lot of political intrigue. I mean, these two, you have these two kingdoms now, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There's a lot going on. There's a lot we'd like to know historically about what these kings were, were like, what kind of things were really happening. And a lot of this narrative gets passed over really quickly, all to focus on just a couple of interactions. Like one interaction the narrative is going to focus on really intensely is this interaction between Elijah on the one hand and his nemesis, Remember, the prophets always have a kind of uh, a powerful person they're going to antagonize. So for Elijah, that powerful person is King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who are kings of this northern, king and queen of this northern kingdom. That's probably the weirdest E that's ever been drawn. Okay, there we go. Much better. Ahab is just, you know, he's like, he's like a classic like storybook villain character, as is Jezebel, his wife. They worship these other gods. They oppress the poor. They hate God. They hate everybody. You know, they're just kind of, it's, they're very one-dimensional characters. The Bible doesn't always have these round characters that have all these traits. David is an example of a very, what we might call in simple literary terms, a very round character. He's a, he's a success and a failure. He's good and he's bad. He's kind of like us. He's a real human in a way. You could even say that Solomon is like that too, in that you get this kind of dense presentation. Some of the characters in Genesis had a chance at being something like round characters. Other characters, though, just are not. They're just like Ahab and Jezebel are just bad, okay? They're just bad. There's just nothing to say about them, apparently. And funny enough, and I made this point before in the class, but I want to make it again because I think it's an important one for thinking about how the Bible operates spiritually and politically as a document. There were kings in this northern kingdom like Ahab who were apparently really powerful. We happen to know, for example, there was a major ancient Near Eastern battle. We don't need to know the details, but just trust me. There was a major ancient Near Eastern battle in which a coalition of a lot of different groups kind of fought together. And we know from documents outside the Bible that Ahab's name is mentioned as providing more chariots and more armaments and troops for that battle than almost any other group provided during this time period. So we know that kings like Ahab were actually big time. And we know that Ahab's father, Omri, was super big time. These were powerful kings that the Assyrians and other groups mentioned in their inscriptions. 
what does the Bible have to say about them? I mean, it'd be a great place for history because like if the Bible said a lot about how they function and how big they were in these other battles and these great intrigues and all this stuff, you could compare it to like other Near Eastern documents and you could get this awesome rich picture of who these guys were and it'd be super fun and scholars try to reconstruct it, but it's hard because our only source from ancient Israel natively from the, what we might call the Iron Age from around 1200 BC through, you know, five or 600 BC, that time period, our only real source is the Bible about Israel. We don't have much else. And what does the Bible tell us about these kings? Basically, nothing. (laughs) Like nothing that any historian or person like that would want to know. What they tell us is what you would want to know for the story of Israel's faith, though, which is what the Bible is. Not a disinterested historical chronicle of things that happened, but a totally passionately, spiritually motivated telling of Israel's experience with God. And so these kings, what they did, who they were, it was just bad, you know? What do you need to know about them? Here you go, a little emoji time. Frowny face, that's what you need to know, okay? <laughs> what you really need to know um, from the Bible's terms were like Elijah and Elisha and their weird little adventures in the wilderness and in the woods and Elisha does like all these miracles and stuff and some of it's really obscure and you're reading it and it's fun to read. They're, they're, they're dealing with widows, they're raising widows' sons from the, from the dead. Um, they're, they're providing miraculous food for people who are starving. But what an indictment on these kings if they're ruling over this area, but people are starving and people are overtaxed and widows are dying and orphans are dying. I mean, that says at least obliquely, if not directly, very negative things about the way that these kings ruled. But the Bible cannot get enough of Elijah running around defeating the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and Elisha raising the widow's son to de- from death and all this kind of stuff. The Bible's focus is on the prophet on God's chosen messenger, not just who was most powerful in a given setting historically, okay? This is why all this emphasis on history, if you want to be an historian and you want to get into really deep biblical studies about how it all works, you should do that. It's awesome. I mean, I've dedicated my life to it. We'll see how it goes. I'm only like halfway through. But, you know, you're not always going to find what you want to find. You might not always be able to do history in the way you want to do it because the Bible has like very different ideas about what counts for history, what matters, They're saying what matters is God's representatives, God's plan, Elijah, Elisha, the widows, these people. Yeah, there are stories about the kings and they're everywhere, but they're not not as detailed as you might want them to be. Okay, the next chapter then, 2 Kings 14 through 20 roughly. Now we're into the 8th century historically. And if you remember anything about the 8th century by what we've talked about already, it should be the fact that this was an era of prophets. Very powerful prophets like Isaiah, like Amos, like Hosea, and like Micah. Do you remember them? Now we're in this setting. In fact, Isaiah is mentioned as an acting character in the book of 2 Kings. He actually appears by name there. So we have an overlap of a prophetic book with a character who's actually appearing in the narrative itself. Okay. Isaiah must have been a pretty powerful guy. All that stuff in the 8th century in review, the Assyrians, this empire roughly on our map, if you could think of them like up here, kind of straight east and a little north of Israel, they come in and they want this land. It's an important trade route. It's an important path down to Egypt and back, and they want to exact taxes. I mean, if you're an empire, what do you want from people? Money. That's basically what everybody wants. Money, money, money. So they want to get the money. You've got to control the people and get their taxes. So this is what they tried to do. Um, they, the Assyrians mostly succeeded in this. I mean, they would come down here, and sometimes these groups would try to fight the Assyrians. Sometimes it would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. But Israel had a choice on biblical terms. Would Israel obey God and trust God to help them with the Assyrian problem? Or would they try to make alliances with Egypt or with other groups? Or how would that really work? 
For the northern kingdom, how did it work? Here's how it worked. Around the year 720 BC, the Assyrians came in and just deleted this country as a country. See ya, bye-bye. It's been real, northern kingdom. We had good times with you disobeying God. Now you're done. Now, you could make a gritty kind of political analysis of this, not a spiritual one, and just say, look, this was bound to happen. How long was this group really going to survive just hanging, out, hanging around up there? You have powerful empires coming in, doing their thing. They're going to, you know, it's, you know, it's going to go down. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. But the Bible's narrative is very different. It's not about the politics necessarily from the biblical perspective. It's about fidelity or not to the covenant. And here I turn to a crucial chapter in 2 Kings 17. We're now very deep into our story. 2 Kings 17 is the the chapter that narrates the destruction of the northern kingdom. So I think I've got that on your reading for this week, so you'll read that. A little preview. Um, The Assyrians came and destroyed that kingdom, and why did it take place? Oh, the Bible's always going to tell you. That's what you've got to love about the Bible. They're going to just tell tell you, okay? 17.7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. Okay? There you go. That's it. That's 2 Kings chapter 17, and it goes on and on. There you do have a place where the narrative is very simple. It's not about all kinds of complex things. Israel just sinned. They just did the wrong thing and God just said, okay, forget it, you're done. What about our friends in the south? Are they gonna survive? Those eighth century prophets had warned about this, Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. If you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen. And look, it did. Yeah, they did survive the Assyrian onslaught. They had a scare with this king named Hezekiah around the year 701, roughly. And there's intrigue about that. But the Assyrian army gets defeated miraculously and they have to leave. Okay, so now are, are the people okay because the Assyrians are gone? Not quite. Our final chapter here, Manasseh, Josiah, and the Babylonians, 2 Kings chapters 21 through 25. There's a king named Manasseh in the southern kingdom in, in Judah, Jerusalem, just hanging out all here by itself. This northern kingdom still exists, but it's just not an independent political entity apart from the Assyrian empire. Okay. Manasseh, he lives in the 600s. BC, that's the time period we're on now in this whirlwind tour. And the text says very negative things about him. <laughs> says that he, in fact, worshipped other gods and desecrated the temple and did horrible things such that, the narrator says, he was like the worst king ever. The narrator says, we've never seen a king sin like this king sinned. He is the worst. And because he's the worst, God makes a stunning, stunning statement. You're going to read about it. God says, you know, I have seen Manasseh. I saw all this stuff. And I just said to myself, I'm done with these people. I'm done with them. It's over. I'm not going to put up with this. Okay, so he dies, having done evil for decades. And his grandson eventually, Josiah, becomes king. Now you have something that's kind of, it's an odd arrangement. Josiah, the narrator seems to suggest, is like the most righteous king ever. Like the most righteous king since David, you know. He does everything right. He, he tries to undo everything his grandfather Manasseh had done wrong. He cleans out the temple. They even like find, they find the book of the law in the temple. They're like cleaning. And they're like, look, we found the Bible. You know, like they lost the Bible. It wasn't really the Bible like we have it now, but maybe it was some collection of laws like what we have in Deuteronomy. They found it. It was lost. And they read it and it's like, yeah, if you behave badly, God's going to destroy this place. They're like, oh no! <laughs> and and they, they kind of, they go and they read, they try to like celebrate the Passover again and do the stuff. I mean, it should work, right? I mean, isn't God forgiving? Shouldn't this work out? Josiah, though, ends up dying a death that's sort of strange. Like an Egyptian king just ends up killing him and it's kind of unceremonious. Now what? 
There really aren't too many other righteous kings mentioned in this lineage, even before Josiah. Hezekiah is known as a righteous king. He was a generation or two earlier. That's kind of it. Now what happens? Well, what happens now is that these last few kings are pretty weak figures. You have Egypt down here. You have the Babylonians, the new empire on the scene over here in the heart of what is today Iraq. That's the ancient Babylonian empire. And they're kind of fighting for the allegiance. It, you know, the Judahites are like, ah, should we align ourselves with Egypt? Maybe Babylon. People like Jeremiah are looking at this whole scene. Now we're in Jeremiah's time. And he's just like, no, 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 no. All wrong, all wrong. This is when Jeremiah stands in the temple and says, do you think that just by chanting, we have the temple, we have the temple, this is going to save you? That's not how this works. Don't be going to the Egyptians. Don't be going to the Babylonians. Don't be going to anybody. Just like, look at yourselves. Jeremiah's cries go unheeded. The Babylonians indeed do come in. And during the final rebellions and indecision, they destroy the nation. And that chapter that I read at the beginning happens. And the story of Israel comes to a close of sorts. What happens afterward though? Anything? Yeah, there are some things. We'll have to make a bridge here as we go forward in the class after this week. I will mention a couple of these books though. Speed round, super fast, not satisfying at all, but these are all books we didn't really talk about in detail. Daniel, for example, is a kind of prophetic book that has a lot of apocalyptic things in it, has a story of a guy who was taken into exile by the Babylonians and how he survives there. Totally recommended reading. Joel is a very short book. There are apocalyptic things like locust swarms coming in. It's not actually clear when the book is written and there's no real date on it, so you don't know. Obadiah is about the destruction of the temple and it's the shortest book in the Bible. It's only like 10 verses long or something. You could read it in like five minutes, so go for it. He's really mad about the destruction of the temple. You can imagine why. Uh, Jonah is the book we talked about a little bit about a guy who's sent to the Assyrians to preach to them and get them to repent, but they, uh, and they do repent. Surprise! Jonah's mad though because he wanted God to judge them and for them to die, and God's like, are you a racist? What's wrong with you? And Jonah's like, maybe I am, okay? Uh, Nahum, however, is like, God, kill the Assyrians. I hate the Assyrians. It's kind of like the anti-Jonah prophet. He just says, we hate the Assyrians. May the Assyrians go down. Habakkuk, kind of in a similar time period, a book not unlike Job in a way, where you have a, a problem of theodicy or this question of like, if God is good and on our side, but there's this horrible evil in the world and the innocent are suffering, how does the world work? So he does that. Um, Zechariah and Malachi are two kind of odd books. Zechariah is just like, God is going to destroy everything off the face of the earth. Goodbye, see ya, everybody. Okay. Malachi is an enigmatic book too, which we don't know when it was written, but there's a prediction about some great and terrible day of the Lord when the Lord is really going to make things right. Zephaniah, Haggai, or I should have said Zephaniah was that book where God says I'm going to sweep everything away. Haggai and Zechariah are two books that occur eh, after the end of this story that we've just narrated in 2 Kings in which basically the people, and now this is also the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are two books we just didn't have a time to cover and it's a cry and shame. We'll come back to them maybe in, in, in a brief glance later. What happens to the people then? Well, in brief, in brief. I've only got about five minutes here, so give me a chance to like end this story, land this plane, okay? Ezra and Nehemiah say to each other, hey, we gotta, we gotta get our community back. They are exiles, they are Jews, and they are now living in Babylon, like apparently many of the upper class exiles were living. Um, Ezra serves the king in a certain role. Nehemiah serves the Persian king. Now, we're, now we have the Persian empires in charge. It's almost like hard to keep track of all these empires, right? Assyrians. It, well, really, it started with the Egyptians, right? E Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Now we're in the Persian period. This is in the, by the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, now we're in the 400s, actually, BC. So that's quite a bit later. 
It turns out that in the book of Ezra, we read that the Israelites were actually sent back to the land, some of them, sent back to rebuild their temple with money from the Persian Empire. Who saw that twist coming? Well, the Persians had an interest in this. They They wanted local places like Jerusalem to have a temple and to be stable so that they could extract taxes from them and rule them. They had no interest in these exiles and these political captives like the Assyrians and Babylonians did. So it was a little different, but they were still an empire. They were still mean. They still did their killing and their whatnot. Um, But they sent these captives back, some of them, and said, go rebuild your temple. Here's some money. Around the year 515 BC then, roughly, we don't know this date for sure, the Israelites rebuild the temple or some version of a temple, which gets beautified and, and reconstructed later. This is what we would call the second temple, second temple. This is the temple that's in the Bible during the time of Jesus. So you might have vaguely been like, wait, I've read the New Testament before. I know Jesus goes into the temple and does and says things. Where did that temple come from if the Babylonians burned it down? Well, they did burn it down, but there was another temple. It was a rebuilt temple around the year 515. So Israel doesn't have a temple for about, you know, something like 60 years, something like that, 70 years on biblical terms, okay? The book of Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of about this project of rebuilding the temple, trying to like get everybody back on track. In Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Remember in in 2 Kings 25 that I read, they tore down the wall. For Nehemiah, they rebuild it. First and Second Chronicles, oddly enough, actually repeat parts of First Samuel and Second Samuel and First Kings and Second Kings, which is why we didn't talk about it too much or read it. But it also adds other details in ways and ends with this command from the Persians to send the exiles back home to rebuild. Ruth and Esther are awesome books. I'm asking you to read some things in the textbook about it this week, at least. Is this all just about men and heroes and kings? No, Ruth and Esther are books about women. Ruth is a book in which men do really nothing but die very well. Um, and women survive to make their own way in a very hard world. And in fact, Ruth, as a Moabite woman, a woman from outside of Israel, gets grafted into the story of Israel. Is, it, is the story of Israel just like this kind of like ethnically narrow story? Well, the book of Ruth maybe provides a challenge to that notion. Because in fact, Ruth becomes like the great-great-grandmother or something like that of King David as a Moabite woman, a non-Israelite. Esther occurs in the period more like Ezra and Nehemiah or afterward, let's say, when the Israelites are scattered and this poor woman Esther is just like alone in this Persian harem of a king. She's apparently very beautiful. She works her way up in the world and has to somehow save her people from a great slaughter. And she does. But she does it without clear divine help because God nowhere appears in the book of Esther by name, which is very strange. God has been a main character in most of these books, right? That we've been reading. Not Esther though. How is Israel going to survive outside of the land in what we might call very broadly the diaspora, if you've heard this term before, diaspora, people spread across the world from a particular group. Now we can talk about Jews in a Jewish diaspora after the Babylonians have really come and destroyed and done this thing. How is this all going to end? Israel has, in a sense, descended to the dead. I raise now this, this icon, this picture. Our, one of our panelists wanted to mention it last Friday and didn't get a chance to, Brooks Lamp, and so I mention it here on his behalf. This Greek word up here, anastasis, resurrection, going up. Why does Jesus in Christian thought have to descend to the dead? Why would Christians cherish this notion that he truly dies? Well, here's one artistic way in the Greek Orthodox iconographic tradition of showing you symbolically what it means for Jesus to descend to the dead. He goes down here. Do you see this kind of dark world down here? At the bottom of the image, there's like a darkness. And you see Jesus in the middle with this thing around his head. He goes down into the land of the dead. He crushes through the earth. You can see here how he's, he's gone down into the earth, right? This is the mountains up here. He goes down and now he's going to come back up. He's going to rise again, anastasis. 
And what is he doing? Do you see how he's grabbing the people's hands? He's grabbing their hands here because he is going to pull them up, okay? This is one great Christian idea. When Jesus goes down to the dead, orientation, disorientation, life, death, something happens afterward. Resurrection means Jesus pulls us up with him and we cannot do it without his help. Resurrection is not something that we earn just by being awesome and smart or going to college in the Christian vision. Rather, it is, it is a victory God achieves over death and over descent and over burial and over all that is chaotic and horrible in the world. And this icon shows Jesus doing that very movement. Unless, unless somehow God comes and joins us in this ugly struggle, unless God just comes down here into this mess, how is this going to get fixed? We're going to see then in our materials that will follow how Jesus comes down into the mess and drags us up with him.